Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. Our understanding of the history of the early Christian church is heavily dependent on the account provided in a single written document, the Acts of the Apostles. Yet for centuries, questions have persisted about the book of Acts itself. Who wrote it and for whom? What was its purpose? And most intriguing of all, how historically reliable is it? Today we're talking to Douglas Campbell, professor of New Testament in the Divinity School at Duke University. Professor Campbell is one of the world's foremost authorities in the life and thought of the Apostle Paul. This year, he's been working as a fellow at the Center on a new book, considering how Paul's biography may help answer some of the lingering questions about the book of Acts and its account of the early Christian church. Welcome, Douglas. Hi. So, first of all, situate us in terms of where we are regarding particular dates as much as you can. Excellent question. Paul is romping around the Mediterranean from about 36 through to 52 AD, or Common Era. And he's imprisoned then in a long series of imprisonments. He gets locked up in Judea, then he gets stuck on a ship, shipwrecked on Malta, goes to Rome another two years, and then he's executed. So his life is unfolding really through the 40s and the early 50s, so he's principally active during the reigns of the Emperor Gaius, better known as Caligula, and the Emperor Claudius. The book of Acts, which talks about Paul, um, well, there's a lot of debate over exactly when it was written. Some people push it deep into the second century even. Other people want to date it very early. So where you place it depends on how accurate you think it is, how accurate you think it is will have an impact on where you place it. So why do we need to know more about the historicity of the book of Acts? What are the controversies that you're alluding to that have existed? It's a fascinating document, and it's quite unique. The mind that created it was thinking in an unusual way. We have lots and lots of lives of Jesus. So the obvious thing that happened for the early church after Jesus had come and gone, and as the church was starting to flourish, was to write a book about their founder. So we have four of the best of those preserved for us in the Bible. But only one person asked the question, well, what happens next? And yet what happened next was incredibly important. And he gave us this account because I think he was trying to solve a problem. And the problem was that the early church was threatened with a terrible conflict and a terrible rupture right in its first generation, largely because of Paul. Um, the early church, uh, when it first grew up after Jesus' death and his ascension, as it were, was Jewish. It was predominantly Jewish. Everybody was a Jew. Everybody observed the Jewish law. They all made pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Paul came along and said, I have a radical new approach that I think God has authorized me to spread. I've got a thousand and one biblical quotations that you haven't noticed before, but I can quote them. And here they are. And what we're going to do is convert people and join the church. They're going to be pagans, and we're not going to ask them to become Jews. So if you can imagine for a moment Christians today being told by somebody, hey, I've been called by God, all sorts of people are going to convert from the Islamic world. We're not going to ask them to stop being Muslims per se, but they are joining the church. What sort of controversy 
with that illicit. So this was the controversy that sprang up in the early church. And the book of Acts was written to navigate that and hold it together. And it was laying out a vision of how you could have both of these wings in the church and how the early leaders of the church got together and worked out how to live together with this difference. You've also done a biography of Paul, and you've worked on his letters, and there are, as I understand it, there's some degree of lack of continuity between the biographical data that's presented about Paul that's found in Acts and the data that's found in his own letters. Can you elaborate on that for us? Yes, this is a stumbling block for some scholars. If you read the book of Acts like a modern historian with spectacles on that were ground with lenses in the 19th century, you will expect Acts to unfold for you an exact, precise account of everything that happened in order. And it has Paul visiting Jerusalem five times. Uh, And this is quite a big deal. If you can imagine walking or sailing in a dinghy from Greece across to the shores of Syria and Judea and back again every time you have to go to Jerusalem. This is a big effort. Paul's letters, when you reconstruct them carefully, only talk about three visits. So the chronology that we come up with uh, when we work out a framework for Paul's life will be very different if we depend literally on the book of Acts as against on what we get from Paul's letters. And people who are sensitive about the Bible, being wrong about stuff, get pretty worked up about this, as you can imagine. And we have to make a decision over who's right. Was Paul misremembering things that were happening to him? Was the author of Acts a careful historian who'd worked things out? Uh, Was it a little bit like Martin Luther? Luther, reflecting on his conversion in 1545, managed to tell us that the date of his big breakthrough was wrong by two years. He missed it. Did Paul make mistakes? Or is he right and is the author of Acts doing something else? Now, I would want to suggest that the author of Acts is not written like, an, like a modern history. It's obviously an ancient history. It's very anachronistic to expect Acts to be written in sequence. It uses literary tropes and figures. It repeats things. It circles around. And by taking Paul to Jerusalem so many times, it's trying to tell us something about Paul's relationship with Jerusalem. Now, if I'm right about how I think the book of Acts is actually structured... It's structured in seven sort of broad panels or chapters. And every panel is either in Jerusalem or has all the key characters visiting Jerusalem. So Paul stars in five panels, so he visits Jerusalem five times. So I think that's our explanation for the five. I think the author of Acts knew darn well that Paul only went to Jerusalem three times, but he's, a, he's playing a starring role in five episodes, and in every episode he has to go to Jerusalem. What he's trying to tell us is uh, Paul loved Jerusalem. It was his mother city, it was the holy city, and Christians are not to forget that, and of course they have. As you're describing the narrator of Acts, it's very much like a postmodern narrative disjunction and the narrator is kind of functioning as a character himself. Is yes, not? yes, that's uh-huh. exactly right. Yes. He even emerges in the final couple of stages of the book. There are these passages called the we passages. The narrative is romping along in the third person. Paul and Silas did this. Paul and Timothy did that. And all of a sudden, we did this. And then it disappears again. And then it comes back about six chapters from the end, and it continues right through to the end of the book. We did this, we did that, we did this, we went to Rome, we got shipwrecked, all this kind of stuff. So again, there's a lot of controversy. What's happening? Are these excerpts from a diary? Is this a fictional device drawn from ancient sea voyages? Or is it, in fact, what it looks like, which is he's saying, 
I was there. <laughs> now, I think probably he was. <laughs> when you look at what he's talking about and you make the adjustment for the five journeys, the author of Acts knows pretty much everything that Paul got up to. Once you fit it into the framework of Paul's life that we get from Paul's letters, everything falls into place. So I'm reasonably confident that it was written by somebody who was there at the end, a sort of a companion of Paul's. I'm pretty convinced the information is good, and we know that for somebody to write a book like this, um, it can't be written very long after Paul died because, of course, the author would have died. So you've got to put it in the lifetime of, of this, this figure. It looks like a man. Now, the author of Acts, am I correct in assuming, is also the author of the Gospel of Luke? Most people think that. And is the, do we find similar narrative strategies in the Gospel of Luke? Yeah, excellent question. Uh, yes, we do. We do. And what we find in Luke is... Very important stories that convey enormous sort of thematic significance for the author are pulled forward and foregrounded and then elaborated a little bit, sort of powerful dramatic effect. This is exactly what happens in the Gospel of Luke. For example, the very first story about Jesus' public ministry is the story when he goes to his hometown of Nazareth and he preaches a sermon. It's the only time he pulls a Bible text out of the synagogue cupboard, as it were, and opens it up and reads it out, and it's Isaiah 61, and he quotes it and says, you know, you guys, this is about me. And things go well for a while, and then everybody in the synagogue gets angry, and they try to kill him, throw him off a hill. Now, this has clearly been resequenced, because later in the story of Luke, it says how he goes back to Nazareth, and we can read the Gospel of Mark and find that this Nazareth story is later on. Uh, but Luke has pulled it forward because it encapsulates all of Jesus' ministry. He comes, he fulfills scripture, he gets baptized in the Spirit, he cares about poor people, he heals them, and the people like him, and then they turn on him and they try to kill him, and they end up doing that. Now, if you don't recognize that this foregrounding is going on, you're going to make a horrible mess of things historically by just assuming everything's in sequence, in a linear chronological sequence. But once you've realized that an author is resequencing critical episodes, you've got to work out where they need to go historically. And that's where we've got a huge advantage if we attend to Paul and his letters first. We get the framework from him, and that allows us to resequence the Book of Acts. And then everything falls into place. Hasn't really been done before. That's what sort of is a step forward here. Right. So I would imagine someone who's like yourself, very attentive to narratological structure, the the narrative voice that's intruding to some extent. I mean, what's the reception to that kind of thinking from the literalists, the biblical literalists that we're dealing with typically? To be frank, scholarly opinion is very polarized. And you have the literist camp that can't cope with the fact that someone like me is saying a verse and a half is wrong. And then you have this liberal camp that's equally militant and wanting to argue that all of Acts is a Greco-Roman novelistic fantasy that was constructed in the second century. And so for someone like me to come along and say, well, you know, there's an element of truth on both sides here. I mean, 98.5% of Acts is really, really good and really early, but it isn't in order. We're going to have to resequence it. This, I think, will make me odious to both camps. Mm -hmm. But um, maybe that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. So 
One of my favorite Caravaggio paintings I need to ask you about is uh, The Conversion of Saul. It's a masterpiece. Yes, it's a masterpiece. And how how accurate is the depiction in that painting in terms of what we've pieced together from Acts itself? Excellent question, because Paul tells us that he was confronted by God in some way near Damascus, but the road to Damascus, which Caravaggio is depicting, is only something that occurs in the book of Acts. Paul is on a journey, and Paul is always on a journey in the book of Acts. He's traveling all the time, and this is a metaphor for what's happening with the church. The church is in movement. So we have to ask ourselves, was he really traveling around? And is the scenario that um, the author of Acts has constructed trustworthy? Because it's a little bit dubious. Paul is in Jerusalem, and he's been sent to arrest Messianic Jews in Damascus, and he's been sent with letters from the high priests in Jerusalem. Technically, they don't have jurisdiction in Damascus. So what force will these letters have? So some scholars say, well, you know, it's invented. The scenario is invented. But when you push deeper into some of the ways that these communities were organized in the ancient world, what you find is even though they don't have fully binding legal force, local communities organized themselves very rigorously, and there was a certain amount of authority Rulers didn't run everything. They let local communities run things. And so if Paul shows up with letters from the high priest, these are going to have force for the Jewish community. So I think that it's plausible. I think he is on the road to Damascus. He's not in a suit of armor riding a beautiful Western charger. That's Caravaggio making a theological point, which is Paul is depicted as a knight, a high-status person in Christendom, someone who's well-born well-educated, has wealth, and who symbolizes pride. And in his pride and in his militant activity against God, he's been struck down off his horse and humbled. He's been thrown to the ground. And so this is not just a long fall, but it's it's a sign of the fact that God is striking him down and dealing with him in his arrogance. And to be honest, I think that's pretty much probably what happened. I think Paul in his arrogance was a member of a death squad. He was hunting down um, these messianic followers of Jesus. He was offended by them. He was quoting the Bible furiously in his support. And somewhere around Damascus, he realized, man, I've got things completely wrong. So let's talk a, a little bit about making the word flesh. You're very much involved in the transformative prison project in Durham. Can you tell our audience a bit about what that project involves? Sure, yes. So I direct the Certificate in Prison Studies at the Divinity School at Duke, and I also am on point for a thing that I call the Duke Transformative Prison Project. Basically, to cut a long story short, um, the Div School has pivoted to address the problem of mass incarceration, and I had already been drawn into this through my wife because she had been visiting a young man He was a friend of our son's in his junior year at high school, did something terrible, and my wife felt kind of compelled to reach out to him and to support him through the pretrial period and then the plea bargain and then on through into his imprisonment. He's he's been locked up for 12 years now. So we're pretty close. He He feels like a third child in the family, and we'd been doing this since 2005. Around about 2011, Michelle Alexander's famous book, The New Jim Crow, came out. And that started a national conversation about the awful racial biases 
in imprisonment in the U.S. And also it's, it's, it's staggering scale. None of this was, was news to me because she and I had been visiting these prisons for years now looking at what was going on and just, just being pretty horrified, actually. So around about 2011, the Div School started to pivot um, and start training interested students and um, in prison work and helping them to do that. So we were able to set up courses with the help of a local uh, non-profit led by some of our most uh, brilliant and adventurous alums who live in Walltown. They set up a thing called Project Turn and we take our students into prisons and local facilities where they learn alongside the prisoners for a semester at the same table. They discuss things as equals and uh, get graded in the same way, uh, assessed in the same way. So we immerse our students in prisons because you can't really understand them unless you get inside them and feel for a moment what they do to you. And springing out of that engagement, I got to know some local activists, some people working in in prisons, some people working in the field of restorative justice, and we realised that to transform the prison environment from the rather harsh, denigrating environment that it is at the moment, sort of a bullying environment, breaks people down. To reform that environment, what we needed to do was reform the mentality of the people who are doing the locking up and the ordering around. It's very important to bring the correctional officers into the conversation. And when you get to know these people, they're good people doing an impossible job. And they have a very, very difficult life. And so we put together this team in this teaching program which is really pitched towards correctional officers, asking them to employ practices of self-care, to think about what they're doing in a constructive way, to think about what they're doing not as a, a stressful, underpaid, kind of traumatic job, but as one in which they're making a real difference to people who really need help. And so that's what we've been, we've been doing. We've been limping along, trying to cope with the vagaries of the recent electoral outcomes. <laughs> but my fingers are crossed that this process will continue to flourish. Well, thank you, Douglas Campbell, both for your scholarly and your missionary work. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.